Father God, um, thank you for this gathering of your people. Thank you for um, your great love to us. Thank you for making yourself known. I thank you that you do speak through your word, your precious word to us um, that testifies of who you are and what you've done for us in your son, the Lord Jesus. Um, today, we pray that you would soften our hearts by your spirit as we um, hear this tremendous passage um, uh, just read and explained to us. And we pray that uh, you would have your, your way in us through your, your word, uh, that you would work what you intend um, through this passage today in our hearts and our lives. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so if you've got a Blue Church Bible, there'll be a bookmark pretty close to this passage. It might be the, the page before, uh, but the words will be up on the screen, I think. Did I add the whole passage? Can you just flick to the next one? It's in there? Fantastic. All right. So this is um, 1 Thessalonians 4 from verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them. As labor at pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. The brothers and sisters are, are not in darkness, so this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the night and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Steve, is that on? We're on? Great. Good to be back here amongst you all in this uh, warmer part of South Australia down here. 
It's, uh, it's beautiful. It's great to be back. Well, I want us to begin this morning by doing something that's quite hard to do on a Sunday morning, which is to use your imagination. All right? So there's no, there's no tricks here. This is not like a Crows pre-season camp. I'm not going to blindfold you, but I do want you to close your eyes. Okay, just, just the next few seconds, okay? Um, everyone's got their eyes closed? Good. Now I want you to imagine a world where death wins. Imagine a world where death's shadow hovers everywhere, hovers over everything and everyone. How are we going? You can open your eyes now. Of course, you don't have to use your imaginations, do you? This is our world, isn't it? We don't need to imagine that. Got a photo here. Oops, sorry, that's my cheek, or that's the microphone. Uh, next one would be great. What's going on there? Let me change this around. That could be the aerial, could be me. Put that in my pocket. Um, that's... Um, Brighton Cemetery near where I live. Now, uh, is that me? That's all right. Thanks, mate. Good on you. So I, I ride um, a couple of times a week and. Uh, at least a day a week I ride to work down to Outer Harbour with my mate Paul. He works in the power station. When I come home, I always finish off um, slowing down, cooling down, riding through Brighton Cemetery. The tombstones, the crypts there, they preach to me the truth of one of my son's uh, favourite Sufjan Stevens songs. Who's heard of Sufjan Stevens? Anyone know? We've got two hands. Well, okay. Um, it's good. It's good we're about to watch this because, um, see, just as Paul does not want Christians in Thessalonica to be uninformed, to be uninformed about the confidence we can have when Jesus returns, so my son Aaron would not want anyone here this morning to be uninformed about who he thinks the greatest musician is of his generation. Okay? So you can check this guy out. Um, but this is one of his songs. He's an unusual lyricist. Um, we're just going to uh, listen to this and I'll get to see what you think afterwards. the whole song, it's a live concert. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to a concert singing a song where the only lyrics are, we're all going to die. Um, Sufjan Stevens there, very, very public way, uh, he's accepting his mortality. Have you? 
So whatever your name, your fame, whatever your list of achievements, whatever your wealth uh, or worth, uh, these stones like this, they sit over the dead like a World Cup winner, don't they? I mean, to the eye, it looks like death has the victory. See, I ride through Brighton Cemetery intentionally because as I contemplate uh, this day, as I contemplate the tombstones, I'm always provoked to rehearse God's gospel of resurrection hope for that day, for my life, for my family. Do I really, in my heart of hearts, believe the evidence of Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead? Do I believe the scriptures? Do I believe Jesus' words to a distraught Martha in John 11? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, although he or she die, yet shall they live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die, promises Jesus. Do you believe this? He asked Martha. It's really the only question God ever asks of us any day. Do you believe this? Do you believe my son? Do you believe the scriptures? God knows that Christian courage. You see, it comes from this Christian resurrection hope. Being convinced quietly but confidently about Jesus' death and resurrection from the dead. Being confident and clear about what will happen when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. The Bible calls this day the day of the Lord, or that day. It's everywhere through Scripture. It's why the Apostle Paul, having heard from Timothy upon his return from the Thessalonian Christians there in Thessalonica, he's heard the good news, literally the gospel of their faith, the gospel of their standing firm by faith in Jesus. And in this letter of love, this parental letter, full of love and affection. Paul now turns to address two human anxieties that not just common for Christians then, but I think common for Christians and certainly human beings today. They're common because life is lived in the face of a very real death. Of course, our confidence comes uh, as we grieve for loved ones at the side of the grave. Our confidence comes from this resurrection hope. Then raises the question... What should our concern be about how we should live life now in the face of a very real death? Now, one of the reasons I started with that clip this morning and I've started talking about death, I'm increasingly convinced one of the reasons I think Christians often struggle and get themselves a little bit lost, especially the longer you go on as a Christian, I think it's because we actually don't think enough about death. We live in a society that tries to hide it, to beautify it. And so I think one of the keys to living well in life is to think regularly and often about death because then we really are encouraged and provoked to think often and in a very real way about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and what that could mean, what that will mean for Christians everywhere. I'm going to briefly recap um, 
passage from last week because the two passages are tied together. I hope they're going to show some of that. Um, you'll notice in the outline there's uh, three headings. Uh, the first, just quickly, is it's a recap, the courageous Christian's confidence. See, as gutsy, as courageous as these Christians in Thessalonica are, standing firm. Uh, Timothy reported to Paul that their courage is actually being sapped um, by the death of fellow Christians, brothers or sisters in Christ. As we heard there in verse 13, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed uh, to not know about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of humanity who have no hope. You see, evidently in, in the time that Paul had with the Christians, here's one area of teaching he never quite got around to. Will they see again those Christians who have already died? How do they grieve for Christians who die? Of course, not yet Christians. Uh, they have good reason uh, to grieve without hope. But if you're a Christian, we grieve with a very real hope because death is not the end. It's the doorway to resurrection life with God. Paul's reminder here is there in, in verse 13, isn't it? Because of what we believe. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, that God will bring with Jesus. God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him, by faith in him. It's the cornerstone of the Christian hope. You cannot be a Christian and not believe this. The death of a loved one, it cuts deep. Uh, I've seen it. I've seen it firsthand. How grief can mess with your head. It really can. Uh, our grief can cause us to think and to say and do uh, the most irrational things that a most rational and reasonable person is. Jesus reckons one of the most rational things we can do is to put our trust in him before we die. But there's a revelation in this passage as well that uh, Duncan would have talked to you about last week. Uh, I'll just remind you of, of a part of there, to, in part of verses 16 and 17. Have a look. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will always be with the Lord. Look, just as a side note, my son would want me to let you know, uh, Sufjan Stevens has written a song about this passage as well, called In the Air, In the Middle of the Air. And again, it's pretty weird. But have a listen, see what you think. Um, but caught up together with them, we will always be with the Lord. Actually, three times, I don't know if you picked up just in this passage, uh, the little word with is mentioned there. Uh, in the original language, it's S-Y-N, sin. It's the first part of the word for synagogue. Jewish people hang out, a word that means together with. Uh, beautiful sums up God's agenda for human beings. He wants to be together with people in eternity. Verse 13, God will bring with those trusting in Jesus, with Jesus. And again, with Jesus, not Allah, not Buddha, not Krishna, not, not Muhammad, with Jesus. Verse 17, together with them, with the Lord always. On that day of the Lord, we will not just be with our Lord, but with those we love who have died trusting in the Lord. I don't know if, I think that's a, it's a wonderful um, 
apologetic for the Christian faith, actually. The promise of being in eternity, not just with Jesus, but with those we love. Roy and Heather, they were some of the first people to join up um, as we started Trinity Bay Church, uh, which now has a new name (laughs) called Trinity Church Brighton. Um, in 2005. They immigrated out um, a few decades ago from the UK, lived in Geelong. Roy's a painter, a generous man, ever practical. Roy, he had one of the driest wits going around, uh, probably drier than a three-day-old chip. As often the first to arrive, you know, working bee, last to leave. Um, I love painting a wall with Roy. He always left changed, had, having had a good laugh. Roy had this practical, tradie-like faith. Uh, it, was, it, just, it was really practical, uh, really real, really earthy. It was tradie-like. Uh, yet the grief of loss just sort of tainted him and Heather. You see, while living in Geelong, Roy and Heather had lost uh, a child, one of their children, to cancer. It happened over a four- to five-year period. Uh, it was a horrible season in their life, horrible years that, that as I said, sifted them like nothing else. In the last months, as I visited Roy, uh, as I watched him uh, lose weight and and, and on his his road to death, we talked a lot about life and about love and loss and it was always over a cup of tea. Uh, We always read the scriptures, scriptures like this. And I think I was more encouraged and built up uh, probably than Roy was, (laughs) to be honest. Uh, Encouraged and built up as we read the scriptures and as I just witnessed regularly, uh, this man's resolute courageous faith his resolute resurrection hope in his lord jesus christ roy was ready he was ready to be with his lord and very ready to see again and be forever reunited with his son but dear brothers and sisters as you meet with other christians as you meet here you meet in your groups you meet around winter warmers Uh, winter school, uh, as you bump in to one another or other Christians in the street, as as families, as you sit around your table, be regularly reminding one another of these words because this is how God encourages us to keep going, to live courageously. And I think if you do have children... Don't be afraid to talk about what is in the news, to talk about death and dying and the ugliness of this world because I promise you it will cause you to talk about these things with a greater urgency and a greater clarity. Well, having filled in a gap in their knowledge about the day of the Lord of Jesus' return, in in, in the next part, the first part of chapter 5, Paul wants to remind these hard-pressed Christians in Thessalonica why the day of the Lord Jesus' coming Why this day should dominate our eyes and it should be our chief concern for each day. It should be shaping our vision, shaping our dreams, our plans, our hopes, our aspirations, our choices, shaping our behaviours, our do's and don'ts. And so we come to the courageous Christian's concern. Have a look with me, verses 1 and 2. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well, like a thief in the night, that day will come. You know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, there is at least one story a year um, somewhere in the world about uh, some religious group, a a cult, 
they reckon they know the date of Jesus coming. I was thinking, like, why? Why why do you want to know the date? And I think, isn't it, knowing the date of someone's coming, like I'm sure, I mean, Duncan, your family must be really pleased that you know that it's tomorrow that the Queen is coming. Okay, not that it is tomorrow. Okay, so Miriam's what, home cleaning the house? Is this, yeah, yeah, okay, yep. Um, that is, it gives us sort of clarity, doesn't it? It's sort of confidence, you know, getting ready for a date, an exam that's on this day. But I think when it comes to groups and people like this who claim to know, you know, secret knowledge about, you know, dates and times, uh, it gives them control over people as well. You see, if it's a date, it must be true. But times and dates, we're told here, it's, it's fool's gold. It has the appearance of truth, but it's, it's, it's foolish gold. It's, it's got no substance. And Jesus taught that not even he knew the time of his coming. At the beginning of the book of Acts, he reprimands his apostles, saying, look, here's your mission, here's your commission. It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Paul knows that to go down this path, in fact, won't bolster your faith. It'll eat away at your faith and your confidence, like cancer eating you up from the inside out. See, confidence comes not from signs and knowing dates and times. Confidence comes from the Scriptures, believing the Scriptures. And Paul now wants to use two experiences from everyday life to illustrate how the Lord will come back. First, don't be surprised. Don't get surprised like that thief in the night. When we lived in Sydney at Moore College, my dad had made these, um, hand-carved these little bilby money boxes for our four kids. And they, you know, for quite a long, we'd been collecting the coins and we're living on King Street, Newtown, and we we came home, um, you know, one night and uh, to find that someone had been in our house and the, the kids' four bilby boxes in their rooms was smashed, the money was gone. And it was just a horrible feeling. We were surprised, we were shocked, and you almost felt like you'd been violated, really. It's, it's, it's a horrible experience. But as I thought about it, I thought, why were we surprised? We were living in a part of Sydney that had one of the highest crime rates for robbery. Uh, people, other people in college were always sharing stories about being broken into. Why were we surprised? Well, I think it had something to do with four little kids, me studying a, a degree at Bible college, working part-time as a doctor, Gita working part-time as a doctor, and, and uh, you got the kids' drop-offs and the kids' pick-ups. Um, I mean, it was a really busy time of life, um, a bit like a sushi train going round and round and round each day, never-ending flow of responsibilities. And I just think in the fog of life, ironically, here I was at Bible college, <laughs> forgot what part of Sydney we were living in. Break-ins were common. Busy with daily concerns meant that we were living as if, living as if it could never happen to us. And I think that's the point of the illustration here. Paul wants to remind Christian believers then and now that you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You see, in this part of his teaching, he's reminding the Thessalonian Christians of things that he's already taught them. You know very well this is how the Lord Jesus will come back. 
because it's how Jesus taught that he would come. Christ's coming will be sudden and unexpected. So make sure you are vigilant, you're prepared. Don't become complacent. Don't be deceived by the commentary of unbelievers. Brings us to Paul's second illustration, isn't it? It's about the day of the Lord. See, not only will Jesus' return be sudden, but unavoidable. Unavoidable. What does he say? Verse 2, well, verse 3, well, unbelieving people are saying peace and safety. Destruction will come on them suddenly as labour pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. We're familiar with the voices of these secular prophets and Judgment Day deniers. I mean, they're in the media. People who are preaching peace and safety and living as if God is not real and Jesus is not coming back. Uh, one of my um, current ways I'm spending my time is a couple of days a week with a national church planning organisation called Geneva Push who helped sift Duncan, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, did, did all that. So, uh, um, but I'm working in Victoria, South Australia, Western Australia, Northern Territory, trying to see if we can maybe rustle up more young people and not so young people who might be willing to have a go at starting something new for Jesus, starting a new gathering, starting a new church. Um, to reach the growing numbers of unreached people in Australia. I'm travelling to Melbourne a fair bit, which means I've caught about 25 to 30 Ubers from the airport and back. Uh, One guy a few weeks back, Chris, he works on a a couple of days a week, Friday and Sunday mornings. He's an ex-osteopath. He'd had enough of that. He's early 50s, father of four. Um, We were chatting about life. He said, oh, yeah, I, I was made to go to this Presbyterian church when I was young. I hated it. I was made to go. I'm never going to go back to church, never. And it was pretty energised about this. Anyway, I said, well, you know, what about things of God and death? And he said, oh, well, no, I think, believe probably there's something there. I believe in something after death, and, but I believe in reincarnation. Oh, why is that? Well, you never, the weirdest thing happened at my mother's funeral. There was, there were, and dinner and two-storey place and these helium balloons were sort of, blowing up there and, and stuff. And then, you know, there's me and my daughter at the sink down below and the balloons just come down and they just settle next to us. You know, my mother, she loved balloons. Oh, okay, right. Um, and, oh, and people reckon, you know, they can see this spirit, this sort of, you know, I've got this sort of um, a previous life, I was a Middle Eastern man. Oh, okay, right, yeah. Um, Anyway, we, we got to talking, he asked me what I believed, why I believed, how I could believe um, Christianity, given my, you know, six years of science education and working as a doctor. And Anyway, I, as I encourage lots of grown-up people to do, um, is they've never actually gone back and had a look at a gospel biography for themselves. Never bothered to look at the evidence for themselves as an adult, um, independent even of the church. Uh, of course, the, the Uber driver I caught home from the airport that week, um, his name was Havel. Havel had been in Australia uh, six years, from India, Mumbai. Uh, Havel, of course, is part of the great migration of the nations everywhere in the world. Almost 100 million people have migrated to different countries. Do you know that? It's huge. Uh, Australia's got one of the highest percentage rates. Anyway, Havel, he's um, yep, married. Uh, he was a new father, child, three months. Uh, Sort of not really Hindu, but culturally Hindu, because to be an Indian, you've got to be sort of Hindu, and so he lights a candle when he prays, and oh God, they're all the same, aren't they? Look, this one God really isn't there. Like, 
it doesn't really matter. Um, and we talked about Jesus and the uniqueness of Jesus and, and the beauty of Jesus and, and, and that if he, you know, here he is in Australia, he should take the opportunity to check out Jesus. You see, none of the Uber drivers that I've met so far, at least 25 of them, none of them have talked or they believe in a day of reckoning, a day when they will die at some point in the future when they will be held accountable for how they've lived and thought and loved God and neighbour. And Paul says that it's, it's like they're trying to stop a woman who's gone into labour. Now, of course, it's denying a woman who's pregnant will actually go into labour. Uh, that, that is always going to happen. Some form of labour in terms of the baby coming out uh, when a woman is pregnant. It's inevitable, unavoidable. When Gita went into labour with Aisha, our eldest, I, we were ready, I was ready. And like many first labours, it took a few hours. Um, with Aaron, Gita woke up in the middle of the night. Um, oh, I've got some back pain and just and I thought, oh, okay, right, I'll wander down to the hospital and oh, I better get my book because last time it was a long wait. Um, and she goes, she's suddenly shouting, i got to push, we've got to go now. And uh, it's the middle of the night, it's sort of, there's no traffic on the road coming down Shepherd's Hill Road. I'm just sort of driving along, 15, she goes, i got to push, speed up. And so I sped up and rushed up the ramp, parked illegally at Flinders, rushed in and yelled to all the staff, my wife's got to push. Anyway, a few minutes later, Aaron was born. <laughs> it's like it. <laughs> there was just no stopping this labour. Unavoidable. You see, and I'm so glad that unlike the dopey husband who just wasn't really ready and in the zone, that when we went into that ER, everyone was prepared and ready. They knew exactly what to do. They were ready. They were vigilant. They were not dozing. Jesus' death and resurrection of the dead, it's, it's like me running into that ER, shouting at the top of the voice. Jesus' death and resurrection is God in the most public way, shouting into the world, into every generation, I'm here, my son has come once, he is coming again. Make sure you are ready. This is unavoidable. Be ready, be prepared. It's so good we have the story of Old Testament Israel. It was written down for Christians, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10. It's so good we have this story because we see the faithfulness of God against the backdrop of an unfaithful Israel, an Israel who kept dozing off, who kept forgetting the Lord, who were not ready when their Messiah came to bring in the day of their salvation. A thief in the night, a pregnant woman gone into labour. If you think that just because you don't believe in God, that somehow... This isn't going to happen. Paul, the God of Jesus Christ, he's yearning, begging you to please hear what he's saying here. Having come once, his son is coming again. You do not want to live and die not trusting in my son, says the Lord. Well, verses 4 to 8, Paul is, reminds Christians then and now to remember your citizenship Remember your citizenships as, as children of light. Verses 4 and 5, But you, Christian brothers and sisters, you're, you're not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. Can you hear? Again, it's the language of parenthood. It's, it's, it's the language of adoption. Reminding them that they have been adopted as children of God, beloved children of God, adopted 
part of God's family. God having paid all the costs for their adoption. The Bible divides history into two ages. There's this present age, the age of promise, it's the Old Testament. It's the age before the coming of God's Saviour King. This age is described in Scripture as a long, dark night. The second age is the age to come, the time of God's Messiah, Saviour King. This age in Scripture is described like the dawn of a new sun, the dawn of a new day after a long, dark night. Cold night, warm day. Of course, that imagery is used uh, in movies a lot, isn't it? To represent um, lostness, evil, um, you know, death, uh, and light to represent life and knowledge and knowing. Um, the movie makers get it. The line, the witch in the wardrobe, you know? The reign of the, the evil witch, the queen, it's cold, it's dark. Along comes Aslan, the dawn of a new day. The New Testament teaches that Jesus' arrival is this new day dawning. Jesus' death and resurrection ushered in a new day after the long night of the reign of death, of the reign of sin, of the reign of the powers of evil. Jesus has arrived to free human beings from that slavery, to free human beings from that reign, free them from the reign of sin and the fear of death and the power of evil. It's why Luke announces um, at the beginning of his gospel from chapter 1, verses 78 and 79, because of the tender mercy of our God, Jesus is like the rising sun, come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. It's why the Apostle Paul, as he writes to Christians in Colossae, he reminds them, he says, For God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The image of darkness and light, it's all through scripture. It's a metaphor to represent life not under the reign of Jesus and life under the reign of Jesus. And there's an overlap. There's an overlap of the ages. The old age is still there. It's gradually passing away. The new age is breaking in with Jesus and the preaching of the gospel. And when Jesus returns, this present age, the old age of sin and death and suffering gone forever as Jesus brings with him the new heavens and the new earth and so how then should we live while we wait next week's sermon from Duncan will be all about this digging down to the details but verses 6 to 8 so then let us not sleep as others do but let us keep awake be sober for those who sleep sleep at night those who get drunk are drunk at night but since we belong to the day let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Of course, here's Paul's sustained exhortation for followers of Jesus to do whatever we need to do to make sure that we are living life like we are on duty in an accident and emergency. Always ready, 
always prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have, to minister a word of comfort, ready and prepared for, to be seduced for temptation, ready and prepared for whatever strife might come our way, ready and prepared, children of light. Now, for, for you, if that means um, giving up alcohol or things like that, so be it. I don't think that's what Paul's saying here. Although I did decide to do that a couple of years ago for a year. It had been a while. Um, it, was, it was fascinating as I started to notice the drinking culture around me. Fascinating as I noticed how just by me choosing not to drink for a year was influencing people around me. Standing over someone's coffin, it is a very concrete reminder that we've all got to use by date. You might have a day left, you could have 40 years. The question is, how would God have you and I live our life each day as we wait well, wait worthily for our Lord and his coming? But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. It's interesting before Paul gets to all of his imperatives and commands that are coming up for next week. Again, he, he goes back to where he starts. He's saying, look, the most important thing any Christian has to do every day is to dress themselves in the gospel, to clothe themselves, mind, body and spirit and soul in faith, love and the hope of salvation as a helmet. We've already been told by Paul that they've done that well, they're standing firm. We've already been told, they've been commended how well they are loving one another. Paul just says, well, keep doing that. Don't become complacent. Keep dressing yourself in the gospel. When you get dressed each morning, the most foolish thing any Christian can do is to leave God's armour of faith, love and hope hanging in the closet. Of course, armour is the imagery of warfare. And friends, if, if you don't think you are in a warfare, that we are in a battle, Satan roaming around, doing everything he can to trip you up as a Christian, your family, your loved ones, then again, you've, you, you, you're deceiving yourself. Put on God's armour of faith, love and hope. Do whatever you need to do. For me, it's regularly riding or walking through the cemetery across the road, taking a moment to look at a tombstone, to ponder, to think deep about what I really believe when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice this exhortation here is not try harder. It's putting on the finished work of Jesus' salvation for you. To put on his finished work, to rest confidently in God's rescue. Again, Paul says in verses 9 and 10, he reminds us of our foundation, that your future is your foundation. Our foundation is our future. Verses 9 and 10, for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Christian confidence comes not from your work or mine, 
but from God's work. The Father's call of love. Paul's already said back in chapter 1 how these Thessalonians, he knows they're really, they're really Christian because God has called them because of how they've responded and are responding to the preaching of the gospel. The Father's call through the gospel is irrevocable. When he calls a human being through the preaching of the gospel, it's irrevocable. Unstoppable. His sovereign grace is our assurance. For God did not appoint you or I to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Take a moment to think how big that grace is. God appointed you to receive salvation through Jesus Christ. Then we've got the Son's cross for our sins. He, Jesus, died for us, for you, for you. Jesus died for us, that we may live together with him. The Father's call of love, the Son's cross for our sins, the Spirit's comforting, empowering presence and provision, all we need here in the Scriptures to sustain us. Now, the reason I wanted to just touch back on the passage that Duncan preached last week is because this language, this with language, it's here again. Verses 9 and 10. Through Jesus, for us, together with him. Through Jesus, for us, together with him. You say it with me. Through Jesus, for us, together with him. Yesterday I watched the last address at the GAFCON conference, the gathering of Anglican leaders from all over the world, about 2,000 I think. Um, this, this last address was from David Short from the book of Titus. I'd really encourage you to look it up. It, it's just truly heartwarming um, and, and, and encouraging. And as he's talking about trusting in the power of God's gospel to get the job done, trusting in the the preaching of God's gospel to get the job done, to save people from darkness to light, to instruct and provide all we need to live confidently and courageously until Jesus' return. He stops to tell the story of a friend, a friend who got himself horribly lost in life, ruined relationships, was living a life of drunkenness and debauchery. And then someone taught him the gospel, which he believed through which God called him and saved him from darkness to a new life. And he, he describes the life transformation as the most, one of the most powerful things he's ever seen. Truly phenomenal. But he's still in the old body, you know, living in the overlap of the ages. He knows he belongs to Jesus. He knows the scriptures, through Jesus, for me, together with him. Through Jesus, for me, together with him. He knows this, but boy, does he struggle with temptation. And, and, and sometimes loses his way. Do you know what he does every morning? He writes on his hand just here three letters. H-I-S. His. And whenever he's sort of having a moment or he's tempted or... His. 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 
to be together with him in eternity. Through Jesus for me, through Jesus for you, through Jesus for us, together with him in eternity. Like a good Christian soldier, we've got to remember we're part of a unit. I think that's one of the reasons Paul uses this armour language. is because there's no lone soldiers. If you're a soldier, you're part of a unit. You're part of an army. We're in this together. You have a responsibility to your mate to watch out for him, to keep him safe, to pull him out of harm's way. And that's our job as Christians, surely. Especially if you think one of your Christian brothers or sisters is is going AWOL. We've got to run after them, do whatever it takes to bring them back. Therefore, encourage one another, build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. In the Bible, being well prepared, being ready for Jesus' coming, it is not based on a sign, not based on knowing a date, but on not knowing the date. Being prepared well comes from trusting the scriptures. It will show itself in our courage to walk in the scriptures, to walk the swagger of a Christian, confident in God's grace, confident in the finished work of Jesus' son, confident in God's call. He always finishes what he starts. It takes great courage, and it will take increasingly great courage for us to live as Christians But we can do it in God's strength because in his grace he's given us all that we need. And so from our confidence to our concern to our cry. I think that's why Paul finishes praying the way he does there at the end of chapter 5. Verse 23, 24. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. You see, unlike me, God leaves no unholiness project unfinished. All whom God calls, he promises to complete his saving work, to bring people safely to heaven, to be with his son for those who live and die trusting in him. Now what I've done, you'll notice at the bottom of your outline, which you might like to just pull out, I've just slightly reworded that prayer. I thought it might be good for us to pray this prayer together as we finish off. As we cry to our Lord and Saviour in heaven together for him to do what only he can do. There's one little grammatical error I've picked up at the end. You who call us are faithful, I think is a better reading. (laughs) Getting a nod. You who call us are faithful. You will surely do it. Okay, are we ready? Let's pray these words together. God of peace, please sanctify us completely. May our whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You who call us are faithful. You will surely do it. Let's just pray that last line again really loud like we really mean it. You who call us are faithful, you will surely do it. Amen.